everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We want to invite you to learn more about the heart and vision of City of Lights. So check out our website at cityoflights.church and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at City Lights Indie. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's message. This morning, again, we've got treat after treat. Um, this whole series um, really got sparked uh, by a conversation, a, a call that I received uh, from the author of God in Hamilton. And uh, he had just a really creative idea to really take advantage of the moment of Hamilton coming to our city and helping people connect truly to the gospel story that is the seeds are planted in this musical. And once we got over, uh, had a couple conversations, I just knew um, we've got to do more than just, you know, uh, one little snippet or a workshop. We want to build this out and, and build a series out of it. And I just began to read the book and was so encouraged and so inspired by his heart. And a lot of what he's going to say is truly uh, things that really resonate with the vision that we want to see God do in City of Lights as we have an impact and make an impact and utilize story and the arts to tell the story of Jesus. And so we're really, really blessed to have the author of God in Hamilton with us this morning. Would you please give a hand to Mr. Kevin Cloud? Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, guys. Thank you so much. I have been to a lot of churches, and they've done a lot of cool things around Hamilton, but that was the first time King George has shown up in full costume. That's amazing. Hey, before I start, I want to just remind you, I know you all know this, but I just want to remind you how blessed you are to have this man pastoring this community. Um, I have so enjoyed getting to know John over the last few months, talking on the phone. We went out to dinner last night and was so encouraged being around him and hearing his vision for this church. And again, you guys are so blessed to have a guy like this that loves the Lord, that loves you, uh, that loves this community, and is giving everything he possibly can to this. So again, just don't forget that, guys. Um, Also, I just want to say that uh, last night we talked a little bit about how you guys are coming up on your third anniversary of existing as a church. Um, I've been a church planner my whole career back in Kansas City. And I've planted four different churches back in that community. None of them anywhere near as cool as this one. Okay, you guys have got some amazing things going on. But I also want to just congratulate you and say making it to year three is an enormous accomplishment. And it might not feel like that in the moment. It might feel like, well, yeah, this is what we're doing. We got it going on. 90% of churches, 90% of church plants never make it to that point. Okay, so what you are doing and what you have going on here is amazing. It is marvelous. It is honoring God. Don't forget how cool this thing is and what God is doing through you guys. So way to go on year three. Keep going. Again, guys, this is, this is an amazing thing you got going on. I'm really blessed to be here. So just want to say that before I started. Okay, so the Los Angeles Lakers were in New York uh, for a basketball game. And while they were there, they had an off night. And on the off night, the entire team decided to go get tickets to see Hamilton on Broadway, which was an amazing experience for the team and a huge bummer for the entire row sitting right behind them, right? (laughs) So they go and see the show, and afterwards, some media members were asking the Lakers what they thought of the performance. And one player, Josh Hart, had this to say. You can go to the next slide. He says this. He says, sometimes when you're so caught up in your world, you don't really see other things. And so it's great to see other people in their worlds take things from Hamilton and bring it back to your world. Is that a brilliant quote? I love what he's saying here. He's saying, I went to the theater and I saw this amazing story with all kinds of important truth about life and how life works. 
But then he took it a step further, right? He said, but I didn't leave those truths in that theater. I actually brought those ideas back with me. And those ideas from that story are going to change the way that I live today. He's talking here about the transformational power of story. Have you ever had a similar experience? A time when a story actually changed your life? I would suggest that you have whether you recognize it at the time or not. Because every time we go to the movies, every time we see the theater, every time we read a book, every time we hear a worship song, we're entering into a story that holds this enormous power to transform our lives. And the more aware we are of that truth, the more God can use those stories to do his work in us. As I've traveled around to speak about my book, God in Hamilton, I'm always curious how many Hamilton fans I'm speaking to. So maybe by applause, how many of you would consider yourselves Hamilton fans? Okay, I kind of assumed that at this church, knowing what I know about you guys, I figured there'd be a lot of Hamilton fans. Uh, there's also some of you here that are not probably Hamilton fans. You're not that uh, familiar with it. Maybe you don't even like theater all that much. I have one friend I was telling about my book, and he said, you know, I just don't really like musical theater that much. And I said, really, why not? And he said, there's just so much singing in musicals. <laughs> I said, wow, that's a really good insight. There is a lot of singing in musicals. But wherever you are this morning, if you're a huge Hamilton fan, or if, you're, if you think there's too much singing in musicals, no matter what end of that spectrum you're on, I want to share with you this idea that I think is relevant to every one of us this morning, and that's this idea of the transformational power of story. And that idea is relevant because who among us here this morning does not long to be transformed? Who among us does not look at our lives and say, I wish this wasn't true of me. I wish I wasn't like this. I wish I were different. Who among us does not feel this gap between who we are and who we long to be, who God created us to be. Maybe we wish we had more faith, or we were more confident, or we didn't struggle with this particular temptation. Whatever it is, every one of us, every human being, we long to be transformed. And the good news this morning is that God does that in a thousand different ways. But one of the ways that God does that transformative work is by using story to encourage us, to inspire us, to cast vision for what our lives could look like. So right here at the top, I just want to go through three quick examples through Hamilton and how this story can be applied to our lives and transform the way we live. I know you've been in a series for the last three weeks, um, but I think these quick examples will kind of keep reminding us how God can use stories. So first of all, this story is about Alexander Hamilton, right? One of our founding fathers, kid that grew up in the Caribbean, poor orphan kid, comes to America at the dawn of the American Revolution and comes to this country and lives with remarkable initiative. Because of his leadership and the initiative that he takes, he rises very quickly through the Continental Army, ends up being George Washington's right-hand man during the entire war. And it was because of his great initiative. One story that I read was amazing. Do you guys, do you guys know the story of the, of the crossing of the Delaware on Christmas Eve? Famous story where Washington boldly goes over the river, the Delaware, and has a surprise attack on the British soldiers and wins a couple of key battles. Not key because they were large battles, but key because it gave the American people belief that they could actually win this war. Hamilton, the night of the attack, had been in bed with a raging fever for days on end. And he was so sick he could barely get out of bed. But when he heard that battle was happening, he could not bear the thought of missing the battle. And so he wills himself out of bed, he gets into a boat, and he plays a strategic part in that battle in beating the British that night. That's how he lived his life. With this incredible initiative, always taking opportunities, not letting fear or doubt get in the way of what was in front of him. 
There's a lyric in the musical Hamilton where he sings out. It's the most famous lyric. He sings out, I am not throwing away my shot. That lyric captures this, this truth about Alexander Hamilton. And when we go experience this story, Hamilton, when we see this man live his life that way, it's, it inspires us and it challenges us. It makes us say, well, I want that to be true of my life. I want to be a person of great initiative. I want to take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of me. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't throw away my shot. Some of you right now, you have areas of your life where you need to take some initiative. And you are letting fear and doubt hold you back. And it's time for you to say to yourself and to say to God, God, I am not throwing away my shot. Another example from the story that can challenge us is the, is the story of Eliza Hamilton. Absolutely remarkable woman of, of God. I, I loved learning about Eliza Hamilton as I did research for, for this book. I know you talked, I think it was last week, about forgiveness. And that is front and center in her life and in the story. There's a scene in this, in this musical, it's one of the most powerful scenes, where Alexander has betrayed her in the worst possible way, right? He has an affair that becomes very public. Uh, he was the, the second most powerful man in the U.S. government, and so this becomes national news. It was the first U.S. government sex scandal. And he's going to his wife, and he's begging for forgiveness. And she's struggling with, how can I forgive this person that has hurt me so badly, that has betrayed me so deeply? But she walked deeply with God and she gets to a place where she forgives her husband and the chorus sings out in that moment, forgiveness, can you imagine? And you can feel this hushed silence fall, fall over the audience and you can hear people weeping in the audience because that moment can transform our lives. That moment can confront our lives. That moment can make us ask, am I gonna be a person who forgives? Or am I gonna live in unforgiveness? That is a very relevant question for many of us this morning. Some of you this morning, you've been hurt so badly, you've been betrayed so deeply that forgiveness, it feels like an impossibility. But maybe for you this morning, Eliza's, Eliza's example can help you ask maybe just a simple question. A question is, what does it cost me for not forgiving this person? Or maybe Eliza's example can push you forward just a little bit to where you begin to pray and you say, God, I don't even know how I can begin to do this, but will you give me the ability to move towards forgiveness? You see how these characters, these stories can transform us, can confront our lives and the way we live? One last quick example. We just saw him on stage, King George, right? What a great song. King George in the musical is portrayed as this jealous, angry, bitter king. He's desperately clutching to what he wants to see happen, right? I love the line when he sings out. I'm going to sing for y'all real quick. I know we just heard him sing, but I kind of feel like I got to do it too. He sings out, uh, when, when, truth, or when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Right? It's a great song, right? Some of, you, some of you right now, you're like, this is why I don't go to see musicals. What happened right there in that moment? <laughs> but King George's character, he is angry and jealous and bitter, and he is clutching to what he wants. And his character can confront our lives. And it can make us ask the question, what are the ways that I am angry and jealous and bitter that life has not gone the way that I wanted it to go? What are the ways that I am desperately clutching to what I want to see happen? And what's that costing me? And what might it look like to surrender some of those things to God and to God's will for my life? 
Do you see how God can use these stories to transform us? And God does this work in our lives because he loves us, right? He loves you more than you can even begin to possibly imagine. He loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. But he longs to see you be transformed. He longs to see you become who he created you to be. And that is the work that God does. This truth of the transformational power of story is something that neuroscientists have learned more and more about as they studied our brains and how our brains interact with, with, with story. Brene Brown is an author, and she quotes one study where she says this. She says that we are hardwired for story, that story is literally in our DNA. Okay, neuroscientists, as they've studied our brains and how they work, they've realized that when we watch a story, when we go to the movies and we watch a story, that our brains begin to act as if that story is happening to us. Anybody go see the movie Captain Underpants? Yeah, really funny movie about these kids that draw cartoons, right? And their lead character is a man named Captain Underpants. He wears nothing but a cape and underwear. And they draw this cartoon, and then in the movie, this cartoon comes to real life, right? I took my four boys to go see the movie. They thought it was hilarious. My, my youngest son, Levi, was six at the time. And for the next three weeks, this is all he would wear. <laughs> right? Little Captain Underpants at home there. But what, what neuroscientists would tell you is that when you go see a movie about kids drawing cartoons, that the part of your brain that's required to draw is firing like crazy. Is that fascinating? They have a name for this phenomenon. They call it transportation. The idea is that we get transported into the story. And our brains begin to think that the story is actually happening to us. And when that happens, you can see how these stories would have an enormous power to transform us, right? This truth is something that Jesus understood and embodied during his time here on this earth. If you read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry, you see very quickly that he had a primary strategy for how to communicate to his audience about God and life in God's kingdom. How did he do it? told stories, right? One after another after another. Today we call them parables. And it was how Jesus taught us about God. In one passage, you can flip it up here on, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had just told a set of parables to his audience, and it goes on to say this. It says, with many stories like these, he presented his message to them, fitting the stories to their experience and maturity. He was never without a story when he spoke. I love that idea that everywhere Jesus went, he brought a story with him to connect to inspire, to transform, to cast vision for what people's lives could like. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a similar passage where Jesus had just told a set of parables and his disciples, they don't get it. They actually come to him and they say, Jesus, why do you tell so many stories? And he responds by saying this. He says, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. But not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell stories to create readiness, to nudge the people toward receptive insight. Jesus here seems to be saying, I tell stories because stories nudge people forward. Because stories create readiness in people where they might not have been ready. That's the transformative power of story. And Jesus tells all of these stories that are in the Gospels, even to the, with the hope that today, 2,000 years later, that we might enter into these stories that he's told, find truth in them, and then bring that truth back to our lives today and let them change how we live today. That can happen with any story. 
Certainly with a story like Hamilton, which I consider to be, in many ways, a modern-day parable that teaches us so much about life and life with God. Well, with the rest of our time this morning, I want to go through two different specific truths from Alexander Hamilton's life that I think can transform the way we live today. The way that I structure my book, God in Hamilton, is every chapter is a different theme that we see in his life and a theme that can be applied and transform the way we live today. So the first uh, idea that I want to talk with you about this morning is the idea that Hamilton tells a story of grace. Okay, it tells a story of grace. I know you've been talking about this for the last three weeks, so some of this might be kind of a recap. But as many of you know, Hamilton grew up in the Caribbean. His father abandoned their family when he was only five years old. When Hamilton was 10, his mother died. So at a very young age, Hamilton finds himself being this poor orphan kid without any real future possibilities. A few years later, a hurricane comes and devastates the island he's living on. And Hamilton writes a letter to one of his family members about this hurricane that comes. And the letter was so beautifully written that a local newspaper picks it up and publishes it. These businessmen read the letter and they see this enormous intellectual potential in this young man. And they go and find him. And they sit down and they have a meeting with him. And I love to imagine this meeting. This poor orphan kid that has nobody in his life. And these, these businessmen with some, with some means and some power and some influence, and they sit him down and they say to him, son, we believe in you. We think you have real potential. We think you can have a mark on this world. What a gift of grace just those words were to this young man's life. Makes me think what a gift of grace our words can be when we take the time to encourage someone, to speak truth to someone, maybe to, to confront someone even. What a gift of grace that is every time we do that. But these men, they go beyond words. They actually raise money to to build a fund to send Alexander Hamilton to America to get his education. So everything that Hamilton becomes in America, which most historians would tell you behind George Washington, he was the second most influential founding father. But everything he becomes, it's built on this gift of grace, right? It was a gift that he didn't earn, a gift he never deserved. It's a gift freely given. What's true of Hamilton is true of every single one of our lives, right? Our lives also are built on this foundation of God's grace and God's grace alone. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, a man who knew a little something about God's grace. If you can throw up the next slide here. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a beautiful verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we all know that in our heads, right? I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before that you don't know, but the truth is actually, or the the struggle is actually believing that truth and living that truth. The struggle is accepting and imagining that grace for ourselves. This was certainly true of me. I grew up not really going to the church, and I grew up as a middle school and a high schooler, and I was kind of a knucklehead. Okay, I did a lot of really dumb things, a lot of hurtful things to others, certainly hurtful things to God, hurtful things to myself. Did a lot of really dumb things. Here's a picture of me in high school. That's me right in front. This is my grunge band, Loaf, in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. Loaf was the name of our band. The first record that we cut was called Eat Our Crust, which to this day I consider one of my greatest moments of creative inspiration was naming that album. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, but guys, this kid did so many stupid things in high school, hurtful things, times where I used people for my own benefit, times where I treated people poorly because of what I would get out of it. Just, just bad, bad things. But then I started going to this ministry called Young Life. 
And for the very first time, I started hearing about this idea of God's love and God's grace. And I remember being a 16-year-old kid sitting there thinking, like, this sounds amazing. But this can't be true for me. I mean, God can't forgive me for all of my problems and failures, for all of my dysfunction. You ever been there? Have you ever come face-to-face with your shortcomings, with your dysfunction? And thought, how is God going to forgive me again? for this. Truth of my life is that 25 years later, I still struggle with that same lack of imagination when it comes to God's grace. I have a couple teenagers at home who are starting to learn how to drive. And one of them in particular, well, actually, let me show you a picture real quick. I showed you a picture of my son Levi. Here are my two teenage boys. Yep. So there's Sam and Ben. They're, uh, they're a little small for their age, but, you know, that's okay. Uh, these guys were learning how to drive, and they were starting to take their test uh, to get their driver's license, right? And one of them in particular really struggled to pass the test. In fact, he failed it four times in a row and got to the point where he had one final chance to pass it. And if he didn't pass it this final time, they w- the state wouldn't even let him take the test anymore, and they were going to send him to this privatized institution where he would have to pay a lot of money and spend a lot of time going through these classes, right? So I had a little sit-down with my son, a little heart-to-heart, come-to-Jesus moment with my son, right? I said, buddy, I really need you to pass this test, right? I don't want to pay this money. I don't want to spend all this time. I just need you to study this book and pass the test, right? Let's make this happen. So, and and this time I decided, I'm going to put a little carrot out there in front of him, okay? I said, this Wednesday morning before school, I'm going to take you to go take the test. And if you pass it, I'm going to take you to Chick-fil-A for breakfast after, okay? It's a big carrot, right? Chick-fil-A breakfast. Anyone? Can I get an amen? Yeah, right, right, right. So, we go to the DMV. He walks over to the computers. I'm sitting in the chair, and I'm like praying fervently, right? I'm like begging God to help him, give him wisdom to pass his test. And he's taking the test, and he goes to the counter, and he gives him the piece of paper, and I can tell immediately he's failed the test again. And he walks over to me, and I can just see the embarrassment on his face, and he's angry, and he's ashamed, and I'm furious, right, because I know what this means now, but I'm trying to breathe because I know this is a really important moment as a father. So I'm just breathing, and we're walking to the car together, and I'm just like, Lord, oh, Lord, help me, Lord. Like, what am I going to do in this moment, right? And in that moment, I heard this, like, really quiet whisper of a voice. It said, just take the kid to Chick-fil-A, right? Just show this kid a little bit of grace. But immediately after I heard this voice, there was another voice that said, well, wait a second. If you take him to Chick-fil-A, how's he going to learn his lesson? And I struggled in that moment to imagine the possibility of grace. And I'm embarrassed today to tell you that I did not take him to Chick-fil-A. I did the next best thing. I got in the car and I shut the door and I started giving him a very stern lecture. Because that's what he needs in that moment. This is great parenting, by the way. When your kids have failed and are embarrassed and hurt, what they need in that moment more than anything is a good lecture from dad. Right? I hope you're taking notes right now. More lectures for my kids. I started lecturing him. Surprisingly, it didn't go very well. He got angry that I started lecturing him, and he started yelling at me, all kinds of things. At one point, I I vaguely remember him yelling at me that it was my fault he didn't pass the test, (laughs) which made me kind of mad. And I started yelling back at him. And for the next six or the next seven minutes, we drove to a school right by Chick-fil-A just yelling at each other for the entire drive. We pull up to the curb. He gets out of the car. He doesn't even say goodbye. He slams the door, and he walks off to the school. And I will never forget this crushing feeling of failure and disappointment that just fell on me as he walked away from the car. Because I knew that was an important moment as a parent and I knew that I failed it as bad as I possibly could have. 
And I remember sitting there just thinking, Lord, how are you going to keep forgiving me for all of this dysfunction, for all of these failures? Have you ever been there? Failed for the thousandth time? And just thought, Lord, how are you going to give me grace for this one? Well, Jesus, who taught us about life in the kingdom of God by telling us stories, had one particular story that became his most famous. It's the story of the prodigal son. You all know the story. The son goes to the father, says, hey, dad, it'd be kind of cool if I could, like, have my inheritance now. Can we, can we work that out? Would have been an incredibly disrespectful request to make, would have been almost unheard of. And in essence, it was the son saying to the father, I kind of wish you were dead so I could have all your money and all your stuff. Shockingly, the father gives the son the request, though. And the son goes off to a foreign land and lives it up, right? He goes out and he chases after everything that he was held back from back at home. He goes after and chases everything that he knows is going to make him happy and content and that's finally going to satisfy him. Only it doesn't. Because it can't. Because it never will. Famine hits the land. The kid runs out of money. And when the money is gone, all the friends bail because they were just there for the party, right? And this kid finds himself alone and broke and starving to death. Finally, he comes to his senses and he decides, well, gosh, I should at least go home and beg my dad to take me back as a servant. At least that way I'll have a roof over my head and I'll have some food to eat. But what's interesting in this response that this kid has is he cannot even imagine the possibility of grace. He knows he's not worthy to be taken back as a son. He knows he's failed too greatly. He has embarrassed the father too much. He knows that bridge has been burned. And so the son goes home without even the possibility of imagining grace and forgiveness. So this is what happens when the son goes home. You can throw up the next slide here. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with anger towards him. He ran to his son, had him beaten, and grounded him from screens for the rest of his life. Some of you are like, that's not the translation that I have. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what translation that is. No, that's not how the story goes, but that's how we expect it to go. That's what we expect from God after we failed. We expect anger and retribution and disappointment. That's how we expect God to treat us when we come crawling home, begging to be taken back as a lowly servant. But the father will have none of that. Here's what the real story says. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. We have a picture here of a father standing out in front of the house, scanning the horizon, hoping beyond hope that this is the day that his son decides to return home. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What a beautiful picture of grace. And the point here, obviously, that Jesus is making is that this is what the Father is like. This is what God is like. That when we fail and return back to him, we don't have to come crawling back, begging to be taken on as a lowly servant, but we come home with confidence, knowing that God's love is greater than we can even begin to possibly imagine. That his grace is greater than all of our sin combined. And that we will be forgiven. But maybe you're sitting there thinking, Kevin, you don't know about my addictions. You don't know about my selfishness. You don't know about my lust. You don't know about my dysfunction. You're sitting there saying, I'm not worthy of that grace. Author Philip Yancey has a great quote about grace. He says, grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more 
and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Nothing you can do. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you live your life that way? Because the truth of how we live our spiritual lives is we don't believe that. We believe that God's love and grace depends on our performance. And when we perform well, we think everything is good. And as soon as we fail, we think we have to crawl back on our hands and our knees to be begging to be brought on as a lowly servant. That is not the way God's kingdom operates. Will you accept and embrace that grace that God longs to offer you today? The truth is too many of you are being crushed by guilt and shame and self-hatred. And it is time to leave all of that garbage behind and to grab this idea of grace and to let it change the way you live today. Let it change the way that you follow after God today. Let that grace change the way you talk to yourself today. Will you let that grace that Hamilton experienced transform you today? There's one other truth from Hamilton's life that I want to share with you today that I think can change the way we live, and that's the idea that Hamilton also tells a story of despair. Tells a story of despair. In the late 1700s, Alexander Hamilton went through a very deep season of despair and depression. He struggled with depression from time to time throughout his life, but this particular era was a new low for him. And and really, there were three events that led to this despair for him. First of all, we've already talked about this affair that he had with Mariah Reynolds that humiliated his wife and his family, an affair that he later considered one of the greatest personal failures of his life. You can imagine just the the difficulty of rebuilding his marriage, the difficulty of the self-hatred that he must have felt. Trying to rebound from that would have been a very difficult thing. Around the same time, George Washington decided not to run for president for the third term. Washington was Hamilton's greatest friend and greatest ally in the U.S. government. And after Washington didn't run, Alexander Hamilton had a very hard time getting along with the rest of the founding fathers. Alexander Hamilton could at times be very brash, be very arrogant, and he really rubbed the rest of the founding fathers the wrong way. And so very quickly, Alexander Hamilton went from the second most powerful man in the U.S. government to a total political outcast in exile. He was removed from office, and he went back to New York to become a lawyer. And if you've ever had an experience where life didn't go the way that you hoped it would go, time where life didn't work out the way you wanted it to, time you lost a job or were laid off, time someone close to you got sick, time you had a dream that didn't work out the way you hoped, you know how crushing those seasons can be. And Alexander Hamilton was dealing with the fallout from that as well. Thirdly and most significantly around the same time was the death of his oldest son, Philip. Philip had challenged another man to a duel. Another politician was disparaging Alexander Hamilton's name publicly. And Philip decided he could not allow that, that, that um, he could not allow this man to speak that way of his father. And so he, he challenged him to a duel. And the two men went out to the dueling grounds where Philip was shot and killed. Many of Alexander Hamilton's friends said he was absolutely devastated that he never fully recovered from the loss of his son. I have a a picture here of Alexander Hamilton in his later years, and I think you can just see the sadness in his eyes and on his face. There's a song that captures this season for Alexander Hamilton. It's called Quiet Uptown. I think you played it last week. Was it just last week? Yeah. This beautiful song that captures this deep despair that Hamilton feels. And I think the reason that the song is so powerful and creates this this sense of despair so much is that the, the creators of Hamilton were so familiar with despair in their lives. Andy Blankenbuehler was the choreographer of Hamilton. And while he was working on the show, his five year old daughter Sophia was going through chemotherapy. 
So you can imagine what a devastating few years that was for them and their family and everybody that was in his circle of friends. Andy later reflecting back on this moment when Alexander and Eliza hold their dying son in their arms. He said this, he said, I was choreographing myself into the show. He said he knew what it was like when someone you love is dying and they're in your arms. Every one of us, we are familiar with despair, right? We all know what that feels like. As I was going through the process of trying to get this book published, I had some incredible high highs and some deeply uh, disturbing low lows throughout that process. I, I heard no from a lot of agents and a lot of publishers. Finally, I found this small publisher that was excited about putting the book out into the world, and I was really, really excited. We set up a, one final phone call to kind of uh, get everything in order. And I woke up that morning thinking, today I'm going to sign a publishing contract. This is a lifelong dream of mine. I can't believe this is actually happening. And I got on the phone so excited. And very early in the phone conversation, I don't really have time to go through the, the details of it, but it hit a very big snag. And I hung up the phone. You know, I got on the call thinking, I'm signing a publishing contract today. And I got off the phone thinking, this book is never going to happen. Two years of my life that I've poured everything into. And it's never going to see the light of day. And I was absolutely devastated to be that close to this dream that I'd had for so long and then to feel like it got pulled away from me again and to feel like it was never, ever, ever going to happen. I texted my wife um, what happened, and I didn't even call her because I knew if I tried to call her, I just would start weeping on the phone, right? So I texted her um, what had happened, and she texted back this down at the bottom here. She said, can you spend 10 minutes um, just sitting and breathing and praying through your disappointment, then another 10 surrendering to it or allowing God to do that for you? My wife's pretty smart, right? Pretty wise woman. I texted back this. No. <laughs> no, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm very mature, in case you're not picking up on that in, in these stories that I'm telling. Um, I just, that's all I could say in that moment. Because that's what despair does to us. It steals away any sense of hope or light or possibility. And it just leaves us feeling crushed and in the midst of darkness. And we think that's all it's ever going to be like. You're all familiar with that feeling, every single one of you. If we had time, every one of you could stand up and share a heartbreaking story of despair in your life. A health crisis, an addiction, a divorce, a death, a child that went down a destructive path. Some of you are there right now. And you're thinking, yeah, I, I kind of know what it is to be in a season of dark and crushing despair and depression. When you read the Psalms, you see very quickly that the psalmist was quite familiar with despair. So many of the Psalms are people just pouring their hearts out to the Lord in dark seasons of despair. Psalm 42 puts it this way. It says, my tears have been my food day and night. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. See the turn that the psalmist makes? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I love this psalm. And I love specifically how intentional he is about the way he talks to himself. When we're in seasons of despair, our self-talk can go so passive and we can go so negative. You suck. You're worthless. Nobody cares. Your life doesn't mean anything to anybody. When we're in those seasons, we've got to do everything we can to be intentional about the way we talk to ourselves. And instead of negatively, or allowing those negative thoughts to go through our minds, to be intentional, to find perspective and hope and truth. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, says the psalmist. Pamela Butler is a psychologist and an author. She says it this way. She says, we all talk to ourselves. 
Do you ever think it was weird that you talked to yourself? We all do it. We all talk to ourselves, and what we say determines the direction and quality of our lives. Our self-talk can make the difference between happiness and despair. Isn't that interesting? Not our circumstances can make the difference, but the way that we talk to ourselves in those moments can make the difference between happiness and despair. So will you be intentional about the way you talk to yourself when you're in those seasons of despair? Will you take that lesson from Hamilton and will you bring it back to your life today and let it change the way that you live today? Within 24 hours, that snag that I was telling you about with the publisher, it was an absolute miracle and it worked its way out in 24 hours. I called my wife. I said, honey, you're not going to believe what happened. And I told her the story. And I said, hey, honey, I'm sorry that I kind of freaked out over the last 24 hours. And she's like, oh, honey, it's fine. You kind of do it all the time. (laughs) Uh, But God reminded me in that moment, Kevin, things aren't always as bad as they seem. Don't despair. See how we can take lessons from these stories like Hamilton take them back to our lives and let them transform the way we live today. Will you allow story to do its work in you? Will you be more aware every time you go into the movie theater, every time you read a book, every time you sing a worship song at church, will you become more aware of what story is doing in that moment? And will you take truth from these stories and allow God to use it to transform your life today? I want to close with one final story that I came across as I was researching this book, God in Hamilton. It's a story about Valley Forge, which was the winter of 1777, and in a lot of ways was the low point in the entire war against the British. Uh, All all during the fall of 1776, uh, the United States Army was in one huge, massive retreat. They just kept getting beaten by the British on the battlefield, one loss after another, after another, after another. But then it got even worse in the winter of 1777. Many of Washington's soldiers that winter froze to death because they didn't have enough clothes. They didn't have enough shelter to protect them from the elements. Frostbite was common, and amputation happened all over the place. Other of Washington's men starved to death because they didn't have enough food to eat. They, say, they, they lived on this concoction that they called fire cakes. They would pour flour into a pan with a little bit of water, and they would fry it over an open flame. That's all they had to eat. Oftentimes, the flour was of such poor quality that it would be filled with maggots. But it's all they had. Many men starved to death that winter. Other men died due to disease, which absolutely ravaged the soldiers. 3,000 of Washington's 11,000 men died that winter at Valley Forge. And in the middle of this death and this chaos and this darkness, Washington had an idea. You know what his idea was? He wanted to put on a play. His favorite play about a Roman statesman who gave his very life in a battle against tyranny and death. It was a play called Cato. And he had this idea. And when I read about this, I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me, right? Men are starving to death. Men are freezing to death. Washington wants to do community theater? Like, what's going on here? Then I thought, what a brilliant leader that understood the power of story and that told this story on the stage of a man who gave everything against a battle of tyranny and evil. And he told that story to his soldiers because he hoped that those men might enter into that story and might take truth and encouragement and hope from that story and bring it to the battles that they faced in their time today. Story holds the power to transform our lives. And I hope that truth encourages you this morning and reminds you that God loves you and God is working on you, transforming you into who he created you to be.
We pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the way that you love us and the way that you use story to transform us. God, every one of us, we feel this gap between who we are and who we long to be. And we long to be changed. We remind us this morning, we encourage us this morning that you use story to do that very work. And God, for those of us that need to hear a word of grace this morning, for those of us that woke up this morning having failed last night for the thousandth time, will you speak a word of grace and forgiveness into our lives? For those of us in a season of despair who feel absolutely crushed by the darkness that surrounds us, will you give us a word of hope? Will you help us to believe that you can meet us here and that you can lift us out of the darkness? God, lastly, I pray a blessing on this church, on the work that you are doing in and through this church. Will you continue to blow wind in their sails? Will you continue to inspire and envision what this place could be, a center of of creative community, a place where artists and creatives come together and worship and are inspired to use their gifts for your kingdom and for your glory, God. God, thanks for what you're doing here. Will you bless them as they continue to move forward? We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget, you can find us online at cityoflights.church and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.